So if you have a copy of the Bible, you want to grab that and then make your way on over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I did see a few new faces, and so um, along with Sam, let me also um, extend a warm welcome to you. We're thankful that you're here, and if you have an opportunity just to hang out and chat after the service, I'd love to be able to do that with you. Well, I got a picture up here on the screen. Um, It was a picture that was in a local newspaper back in uh, 1999-2000, and so uh, I always got a kick out of this because Kobe's name is on there, and right under that is... um, a huge basketball game at the Masters College when I was there. And uh, we, that year, on the basketball team, had done really well. We actually had this gigantic game against the number one team in the nation. They had won the championship the year before. And the gym was sold out, packed out. Um, And let's zoom in a little bit to a couple of... uh, couple of our fans in the crowds. Actually, one of them is Andrew Calloway, who's a pastor at Hickman Church. I got to send that to him. So he's he's not the one with all the the, the face paint, but nonetheless, just some excited uh, students. But but look closely at what is on their shirt. The whole stands were filled with these yellow t-shirts that said, tired of life. Now, the interesting thing is that the team that we were playing was actually called Life, Life University from Georgia, and uh, we we were tired of them um, getting the recognition, being like this powerhouse, and we wanted to take them down. Uh, We didn't do that. They ended up uh, beating us (laughs) once, twice, three times, then winning the national championship once again. But what was interesting is this was in the local newspaper in Newhall, is that uh, people didn't understand why all these 20-somethings were chanting, tired of life, tired of life, tired of life. It just seems strange to have so many young folks saying tired of life. Well, of course, it was the school, but as some students were interviewed, why why are you saying tired of life? I think you understand for a, a small Christian school, it wasn't that they were bent on suicidal thoughts. No, it was a student body that understood that this life, as good as it is, is also bad. And this life is not all there is. That our best life is not the here and now, but it's a life that is to come. You see, for Christians, we understand, we recognize that there's sin in the world, that this life is full and fraught with friendship fractures, marriages that are marred, even churches that are split, again, all as a result of sin. So you flip on the news, even today, and what do we see? We see war and conflict. We see destruction. We see heartbreak. We see brokenness. I saw a video of a tank running over a guy in a car. I was mortified by that. All as a result of sin. All as a result of a broken world all as a result of man who is depraved. And so when you have a bunch of college students who are saying tired of life, yes, it was the school, but it was also the reality that this life, it's not really our home and we long for something else. We want the greater life, the higher life, 
the more beautiful life. But even as we think about the life to come and we consider the benefits of what heaven will provide, there's one thing that makes heaven the true desire of the Christian's heart. And it's not the streets of gold, it's not the many mansions that we learn about in Scripture, but what makes heaven so great is that Jesus is there. Jesus is what makes heaven great. And so if there's no Jesus in heaven, then it's really not heaven. And no one knew that better than the Apostle Paul. Paul, as we see in his letters, was a man who longed for heaven. He looked forward to the day of his own resurrection. But again, the resurrection and heaven was appealing to him because Christ is there. And to know Christ fully and to be with Christ forever, that was Paul's highest ambition his greatest desire. And so as we turn our attention to this text this morning, I just want to ask you the question, what is your highest desire? What is your best and holiest ambition in life? For the Apostle Paul, the highest and holiest and noblest ambition is found right there in Philippians 3.10. Go ahead and take a look at it real quickly with me. Paul says this very simply, that I may know him Paul's life was controlled by this obsession of the knowledge of Christ. And so again, as we enter into this text this morning, this is the question that I want you to be asking and answering. Is the knowledge of Christ, is that your most passionate pursuit in life? When you're alone with your thoughts, and you have some downtime, and it's just you and the Lord, and you're thinking What are you dreaming about? What are you hoping for? Do you have a desire for more education? Maybe a promotion? Maybe some more money, some more assets, some more property? Are you you looking forward to maybe dating, marriage, having your first child, having more children? Is it a skill? Is it a hobby that you want to perfect? What is going on in your mind when you are in that quiet time and you begin hoping and dreaming for something? And it's not that none of those those pursuits are not bad in and of themselves, obviously, but for the Christian, there needs to be one preeminent pursuit that dominates our thinking and our lives. And that pursuit is what Paul speaks about in these verses right here. It is the pursuit of knowing Christ and becoming like him. Now, look back to verse 4, and we, we saw in verses 4 through 8 that Paul emphatically states that everything that he used to regard as his assets were actually deficits. And we went through that list. His heredity, his nationality, his pedigree, his ethnicity, his piety, his religious intensity, and his self-made morality. All those things didn't bring him even a millimeter closer to God. And so he concludes after all of that, all these former privileges, all of his former performances, they amounted to what Paul says here was dung, rubbish. Instead of his own works-based righteousness, what he needed was faith-filled, grace-based righteousness, which comes from God through faith. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul gave us an overview of the whole Christian life, sweeping from the inception when we are first declared righteous, justified. We saw that in verse 9. And then the process of sanctification in verse 10. 
And then the height of it all, when Paul introduces the idea of glorification, the resurrection from the dead there in verse 11. See, the path to knowing, loving, and longing for Christ comes through that experience of justification. No one will see God in heaven unless they have been justified. And it's not just justification for justification's sake. We need righteousness so that we can have a relationship. That is the main aim, is relationship with Christ. And so that relationship is personal and it's intimate and it's ever increasing. And we look forward to that time when we will be with Jesus face to face. And the Lord even says here in the scripture that he uses suffering to grow us in our spiritual maturity. That was all last week's sermon. Well, now after he's spoken so highly about the resurrection and conformity to Christ's death, And one day attaining to this ultimate goal, Paul comes to a full stop and says, okay, wait a second. I want to be clear. Just so you know, I have not attained to it yet. I haven't arrived. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. So there's this disclaimer in verse 12. that There is an ultimate goal, a final prize, but Paul says, I still have a few laps to go. You see, when Christ called all of us, when he justified us, it was like the, the gun at the start of the race. And the whole long sanctification process is that race. But it's a race that ultimately has an end point. There's a finish line that we all need to be pursuing. Every Christian, whether you have been walking with the Lord for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, or whether you got saved yesterday, All of us are on the same track, running the same race, pursuing the same ultimate goal. So let's see what Paul says about this goal. Look there in verse 12. He writes, Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, think this way. And if anything you think differently, God will reveal that also to you. However, Let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Oh Lord, would you please unpack this passage for us so that we would see you as the ultimate prize and we'd pursue you with everything we got. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's our main idea for this morning. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14, Paul provides us with a threefold, what we'll call game plan, to help us pursue Christ as our ultimate prize. Again, this passage provides us with a threefold game plan to help us pursue Christ as our ultimate prize. You see, in pursuing the prize, Paul made, first of all, an honest assessment, and we see that in verse 12. And then we see that he had the highest aim in verse 13. And then we conclude by looking at the most honorable achievement in verse 14. Honest assessment, highest aim, honorable achievements. If you're in Christ this morning, you understand that the Christian life, it consists of a disciplined pursuit toward a desired destiny. 
And that destiny is a fully realized relationship with Jesus when our bodies are resurrected and we get to be with Christ in the age to come. And just a casual glance here at this text, what we see here is that there is a goal that needs to be passionately pursued. Look there at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it, but I press on. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider myself as taking hold of it. But one thing I do, 14, I press on. Let us think this way. Verse 16, let us keep walking in step. There is no doubt that the Christian life consists of continually pressing forward in intimate knowledge. And it's that intimate knowledge that produces the imitation that we all need to have as followers of Christ. You see, you and I, we were saved so that we would know him and be like him. And we long for that day. Do you not, Christian? Do you not long for that day when there's no more fighting with sin, no more hindrances, no more barriers, but you will fully and finally know him and be like him. But while we wait for either Christ to return or our own death and resurrection, we don't sit back idly. We don't sit back kind of twiddling our spiritual thumbs, waiting around. No, what the scriptures tell us is that we need to be alert. We need to be engaged We need to be participating in the race that's set before us. And so in this text, Paul permeates it with this athletic imagery. It has striving written all over it. It's a passage that's dripping with sweat. And we see the same thing in a lot of other New Testament texts. We we looked at one earlier. But this passage in 1 Corinthians 9 lays out very clearly that we are in a race. Paul says, do you not know? That those who run in a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Therefore, run in such a way that you may win. Now, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air But Paul says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And that passage we looked at in Hebrews chapter 12, we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. So therefore, we have to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we see the same kind of language here in verses 12 through 14. So Paul, what he does is he describes his own race, but at the same time, he's spurring us on, all of us, to press on in the same exact way race. What I love about the Apostle Paul is he's not like some overweight coach who's just chomping on a BLT and chugging down a two liter of Coke. He's sitting on a lawn chair and like, keep running, guys, keep running. No, Paul, Paul is the best of them all. He's out ahead of us. He's the pace setter. And he circles back every so often just to encourage you, hey, brother, keep pursuing. Hey, sister, keep longing after Christ. That's Paul's attitude here. So again, as we open up this text, think to yourself, how are you doing in the race? Are you running? 
Are you jogging? Are you walking? Are you kind of just meandering and wandering around? Well, let's look at what Paul does here. First of all, he begins with an honest assessment. Look at verse 12. He writes, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's perspective here was that he hadn't attained the goal that he laid out in verses 8 through 11. He wanted to know Christ, but he recognizes, hey, I haven't, I haven't fully arrived. I don't know him perfectly. I want more of him. And because of his healthy self-assessment, he was able to have a self-awareness of where he was actually at in life. He says there, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. Now, remember, before Paul was converted, others would have looked at his life and thought he was nearly perfect. I mean, he was, he was blameless. Even after coming to Christ, I'm sure people would have looked at this man's life and thought, this guy is the pinnacle of godliness. I mean, who is more godly than the Apostle Paul? So if you ever get on Jeopardy and you have the Apostle Paul as a category and the question comes, scholarship for 100. Who was the greatest scholar and theologian? Who is the Apostle Paul? How about suffering for 500? Who suffered more for the cause of Christ? Who is the Apostle Paul? Spiritual maturity for 1,000. Who planted more churches? Who converted more Gentiles? Who, who established and built up more churches than the Apostle Paul? Nobody. He was the man. He was the poster child of devotion. And yet, Paul himself realizes, I'm not perfect. In fact, he calls himself the chief of what? Sinners. You see, he had a correct assessment of where he was at in this race. There was no premature celebrations. He wasn't trying to mount the podium to give a victory speech. No, he had more miles to go, more laps to run. Now, what exactly here is this prize that he's talking about? But what is the it? It says there, not that I have already obtained it. The question is, what is that it? Some say that it is Christ-likeness, that it's becoming like Jesus. And so is that what the it is referring to, becoming perfectly like Christ, wholly mature, completely mature, fully conformed to his image? And we'd say that's certainly part of it. Paul, Paul would say, I haven't arrived yet. I know there's so much more growing and maturing in my Christian life. He knows he's not perfect. But I think it's talking about something more when he says, I have not obtained it. You see that word perfect, it's in the passive voice, which means that ultimately God is the one who performs what Paul is pursuing. And if we limit it to the attainment of spiritual maturity or acquiring of moral perfection, then we lose, I think, the force of what Paul is saying. I think the it and the being perfect here in verse 12 are referring to the total consummation, the whole redemptive process. Paul's eyes are fixed on the glorious day when he will be finally with Jesus. Not perfection here on earth, but taking hold of him at the resurrection. The it and the being made perfect point to actually what he's just said in verse 11. Look there with me. He wanted to attain to the resurrection 
from the dead. And you say, why? Because once the resurrection from the dead comes, then through many dangers, troubles, toils, and snares, he will have arrived to the destination where it's him and Jesus, finally. That is what our souls long for. And Paul is pursuing that, and he's not going to stop until he gets Jesus. So Paul's honest assessment begins with a proper perspective. He knows he hasn't arrived. And if Paul hasn't arrived, then what does that say about you and me? Well, we, we, we know that we haven't arrived. We know that just based on our drive over here. Paul knows that he has not fully become perfect. That's going to come, but it's going to come at Christ's return or our resurrection. So again, what does Paul do in the meantime? Well, he just he keeps going. He keeps pressing on. Look there at 12b. He says, but I press on so I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The pursuit of the personal knowledge of Christ was his passion. It's an all-out effort. That's what that word press on actually means. Dioko is the word. It means to run after, to flee after. It has the idea of earnestly endeavoring to acquire something. It indicates the strenuous stretching out. Every sinew, every muscle is leaning toward this one thing. Uh, I was uh, hanging out with a friend of ours, Jess and I, and uh, he's got a Tesla. And so we sat in the Tesla and thought, this is like the super futuristic car. Apparently, the Tesla can drive itself. And so he was telling us about all this work he gets done, you know, on his iPad and reading because the Tesla is just driving itself. So I thought, that's so cool, man. I'd be so much more productive if the Tesla just drove me everywhere. That's not Christianity. You don't take your hands off the wheel, the eyes off the road, and your foot off the gas. You don't accidentally become more godly. If you want to be like Christ, you need to pursue it. It needs to be a passion of yours. Last night, we were watching a, a documentary on Eric Little. We, we had watched um, the Torchlighters on Eric Little, so we were watching a documentary. And uh, one of the guys was talking about his running style, Eric Little's running style. And if you've seen that movie, Chariots of Fire, you know anything about him, he had a very strange running style. Now he's pumping his arms, his knees coming up super high, he had his chest out, his head is back, his mouth is open. That's the picture of our sanctification. It's how it's supposed to be. Not just, eh. But that's how some Christians live. You can tell the difference. Eric Little running like a madman and someone just kind of wandering around, careless, no attention. But, but look at the words here. Verse 8, I may gain him. Verse 10, that I would know him. Verse 11, that I may attain. Verse 12, that I may lay hold of. There is maximum effort in the Christian life. Energy needed for Christian maturity. So listen, we need to work. We need to press on. We can't be lackadaisical. There is no such thing as a passively mature Christian. You don't accidentally or apathetically become holy. No one coincidentally becomes more like Christ. I realize for some of you, you feel like sanctification is a, is a super slow process. 
Do you feel like a sloth when it comes to your holiness? Let me just encourage you, like sanctification, it's a long, and it is a process. It's slow sometimes, but just make sure that that slowness is not a result of your sluggishness. Paul reminds us here that the Christian life, it, it requires discipline, dedication. It requires concentration and commitment. So that's Paul's perspective. He's got an honest assessment. That perspective drives his pursuit, and that pursuit has a purpose. And you say, well, what's the goal? What's, what's the purpose here? Look there at 12c. He says, that I may lay hold of that which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And here's the beauty of this word. It's a very intense word. It's a compound word. And when we see it in other places in the New Testament, it means to, to see something as to overtake it. It's like a defensive lineman going after the quarterback. He, he's, he's going after him, chasing him down, and then he's tackling him. And that's the kind of imagery Paul is painting here. What again is he laying hold of? Is it Christ-likeness? Again, certainly that's true. Romans chapter 8, you know this verse very well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose because those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to what? The image of his son. So conformity to Christ is a goal, no doubt. Why is God causing all things to work together for good? Because his main aim is that you would be more like Jesus. Christ-likeness is the goal of discipleship. That's why we do men's and women's Bible studies. That's why we take someone under our wing, because our desire as a church is to see Christ formed in the lives of believers. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, it is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. So, so we know that Christ-likeness is the aim, but it's not it. It's not just Christ-likeness. Yes, we're justified. Yes, we have righteousness. But all of that is for the purpose of knowing Jesus, being with him, enjoying him, delighting in him. And it's that enjoyment and that delight that produces the imitation. So yes, Christ-likeness, it's a noble and worthy goal, but it's not the primary prize. Paul says, the reason why I want the resurrection from the dead is so I can be with him. That's what I want. Face to face, at his feet. That's what I long for. You know, I used to think of a relationship with Jesus like a ticket. Just give me the ticket so I can get to heaven. But who in here grabs the ticket and then delights in the ticket itself? The ticket is not the goal. It's not the piece of paper, it's the person. It's the access to the events. It's the access to the location. It's the access to the people that that ticket gives you. And it's the same thing here. John 17, three says this, and this is eternal life. From Jesus' own mouth, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The reason why we long for the resurrection in heaven is because it gets us Jesus. So that's Paul's honest assessment. It doesn't lead him to passivity, but a passionate pursuit. And he describes that pursuit in terms of what is most important in his life. 
and how he approaches it. But point number two, we see here Paul's highest aim. Verse 13, Paul's highest aim. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul says here again, hey, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still running. I'm still, I'm still chasing. He's in a hot pursuit. Now, some have mistaken Paul here to mean that he's still in the process of attaining this perfection, and he can one day here on this earth. So the question is, is that possible? Can we be perfect? You know there are a lot of people who think that we can achieve perfection here on this earth. Actually, one of the byproducts of this Judaizing legalism was the belief that you could be so devout, so committed, so meticulous in your law-keeping that you can be perfect. That skewed view of sanctification is what's known as perfectionism. It's also called total sanctification or complete sanctification. I was actually sitting down with someone yesterday who said, that's the kind of church that I came from. The Methodist, some of them believe that. The Wesleyans, those with a Nazarene background, hold to this view. And sadly, John Wesley, who we know and we love and who was a believer, but he howled to this form of uh, perfectionism. And it's basically the conviction that, hey, a believer can reach the place of spiritual moral perfection because there's this second blessing that for a time anyway allows us to be perfect. Some people actually thought that we can completely eradicate sin in our lives. I came across this interesting story about Charles Spurgeon. Everything that I read about this guy, I love him more and more. But he was with another man, and they were guest preachers at a conference in England. And as the other man was preaching, Spurgeon is sitting there listening, and this guy is affirming basically this sinless perfection idea. And he went so far to announce to everybody that he had humbly achieved perfection. And so Spurgeon, who's actually, um, by God's providence, staying with him at the hotel. The next morning, Spurgeon has this idea at breakfast to come behind him, and he grabs a big jug of milk, and he just pours it on his head. This is a true story. And the reason why he poured it on his head is because he wanted to see how perfect this guy was. (laughs) And obviously, the guy just flipped out and got angry and started cursing, and Spurgeon was like, all right, so I guess you don't have perfection Listen, it's true that we're never meant to stay spiritual babes. We are to mature, right? But we're never going to reach the apex of spiritual maturity while here on this earth. Talk to some of the gray-haired people here. They love the Lord. They've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but they'll be the first to tell you I haven't arrived. We have resurrection power to defeat sin, and we say yes and amen to that. We're growing in our holiness experientially, intellectually, but we will never, ever reach a place of spiritual perfection. So what do we do? Well, we keep running. We keep racing. We keep fighting. Paul, Paul, he could have just coasted. I mean, look at his resume. He, He could have stopped, but this dude is in prison, and he's still preaching. He wants to go all the way till his head is chopped off. That is the only way he's going to stop. No one arrives at the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. Nobody. Thinking that way is actually a clear demonstration 
that you haven't arrived. That's not Paul's attitude. Look what he says there. He says, but one thing I do. Notice there in the text in verse 13 that I do in your Bibles, I think it's italicized. It should be. That just means it's not in the original Greek text. But it's the brevity of Paul's phrase in the Greek that makes it even more emphatic. He says, but one thing, but one thing. Paul has this single-minded laser focus. And it's that single-minded laser focus for some that will lead you to heaven or lead you to hell. Let me give you an example. The rich young ruler who claimed to have perfect righteousness. I've kept all of it. And Jesus says, yeah, but one thing you lack. One thing. Now, was Jesus saying you got to go sell everything if you want to earn heaven? No. He was saying you, you're holding on to something, and there's one thing that you need to do. You need to give it all up for me. And the rich young ruler was unwilling to do that because he valued and treasured his possessions and his money and his wealth and his prestige more than that one thing, which was Christ. He does the exact same thing to Mary. Mary and Martha, you know, Martha's just serving. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha gets upset. Tell her to step up and hold her own. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, Martha, Martha, Martha. There's one thing that's necessary. And Mary has chosen that one thing. David in Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Asaph in Psalm 73 writes something similar. He says, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. You see, Paul distilled everything down just to one thing, and that was the goal and ambition of his life. It was a single-minded focus. Uh, I'm watching all this Winter Olympic stuff on YouTube with the kids. We were watching the Jamaican bobsledders and the ice skaters and the snowboarders, and I'm so fascinated by the technology nowadays that allows them to shave off just like milliseconds the aerodynamics of their helmets and their clothing and the positions that they take as they're kind of skiing back and forth. It's fascinating to me. And here you have these Olympic athletes doing whatever it takes, whatever it takes to cut down that time. And again, remember Paul's words, they're doing it for a perishable wreath. How much more should Christians be organizing and structuring and disciplining themselves to pursue that one thing. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, if Christians were putting into their spiritual walk the kind of discipline that athletes put into their chosen sport, the church would be pulsating with revival life. Sadly, we're just kind of meandering, looking around. Our, our senses have been heightened, right? Because we're in war now. There's war going on, and so we think, well, are we going to war? How are we going to get involved? What's going to happen to the stock market? We're, we're... And you begin to ask questions because there's war going on. When you put your guard down and you think there's no war, what's going to happen? You ever been into a fight? I've been into plenty. It's not a good idea to put your hands down. That's when you usually get punched in the face. 
Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Now, in the scripture, forgetting is usually a bad thing. Israel continued to forget the covenant God, the promises, and over and over again, because of Israel's forgetfulness, they suffered. But we as believers, we do the same thing. We have this spiritual amnesia, and we forget about the bondage of sin and what that created, and so we go back to it. We forget about the joy of intimacy with Christ, and so we go running after other things. So many of our problems stem from forgetting but here we see there's something that we actually should forget. Paul says you need to forget. And the word here means to cease to be affected by. So, so Paul's not saying, hey, forget about people in the past or vital life lessons. Forget about edifying experiences that you've had. He's not saying that. He's saying forget about your past performance, your past victories, the things that you used to glory in because you cannot rely on those things for today. Parents, how well do you know this? You had a great time in the Word yesterday. Today, you're really struggling with patience with the kids. It's probably because you're, you're depending on yesterday's eating, right? The Scriptures tell us that every single day, we need to be pursuing after Christ, not past victories. Think about it. Paul... He's almost been a believer for 30 years now. He's handpicked by the Lord himself as an apostle. He's personally discipled by the Lord. He's shown the third heaven. He's written 13 books of the Bible. He's a pastor, a missionary, a giant of the faith, but yet he knows, I can't depend on any of that stuff. That's not going to help me today in prison. I need to today be pursuing the Lord Listen, mature Christians, they don't rest on their past accolades. But we also don't live in the realm of regrets. Because if we just always going back to our former failures, our former hurts, our former letdowns, and we're not delighting in the grace of God for today, we lose our focus. We become discouraged. We become disheartened. I often am um, guilty of having kind of that Uncle Rico mentality. I think, man, if I could just go back, if I could just go back, man, I'd win state. Uh, I, I, would be, I would be this and I would be that. I, I just want to go back. But here's the reality. When you turn your head in a race, you slow down. When you turn your head in a race, you go off course. So the goal to becoming more Christ-like is to stop looking back and to put your eyes squarely on the finish line, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. That's why he uses this term right here. He says, reaching forward to what lies ahead. It's a fascinating word. It means to strain, to stretch forward. It's a compound word, and it's got this verb, taino, which means that you're stretching to the, to the very limits, but it also has two prepositions attached to it, which heightens the intensity and heightens the action. And so it's like you see someone who's running to the finish line as a neck and neck race, and the person just throws themselves forward, just lunges and leaps forward. That's what Paul is saying. We need to reach forward to what lies ahead. So 
Again, it's an honest assessment. Paul is directionally looking at the highest aim, which is Christ. He wants to take hold of the prize. Now we come to point number three, and it's the honorable achievement in verse 14. Look there, verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, there's that word again, I press on. It's the second time he uses the verb. But what I didn't tell you before is that this actual word is the same word that is used in chapter three, verse six. Look there, when it says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. It's the same word, press on. What, what Paul is saying here is that in the same way that I was zealous to put an end to Christianity, I was pursuing these people. I was going after them. He wanted nothing more than to put an end to Christianity. And so it was an intensity. It was a focus. He says, but when Christ got a hold of me, when he met me on the Damascus Road, and he reprogrammed my heart, I no longer pursued those things, but I pursued Christ in that way. I gave it my all, full intensity. So now instead of zealously trying to ruin Christians, he's running with them toward Christ. And it says he's running toward the goal. That word there is just, it's the marker, it's the tape, it's the finish line. But notice here that Paul, he's not just interested in crossing the finish line. He says here, I wanna win. I press on toward the finish line and I do it for the prize. I want the prize. The Greek word there for prize, it often described in, in the secular environments, the wreath that was hung over. And it wasn't just the wreath, right? That's not very valuable, but it's what comes with it. It's the notoriety. It's the popularity. Oftentimes, you would be excluded from having to pay taxes, which sounds fantastic. You have all of these rewards that come your way if you win the prize. And Paul says, oh, I... I want the prize, I'm desperate for the prize, I long for the prize. And he calls the prize here, look, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the question is, why does he say that? Why does he say the upward call? Why doesn't he just say, I want the prize, then it's Jesus. Why does he say the upward call? Well, in Hebrews chapter three and verse one, the writer says this, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. You see, at the moment that you believed and the moment that you were justified, that is the effectual, undeniable call of God. And whoever he calls, he justifies. And whom he justifies, he will also glorify. But the beautiful thing here, as we look at 2 Thessalonians 2.14, is this. Paul writes there, it was for this. He called you through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not so much just the call to heaven, but it is a call to Christ who is in heaven. That's the call. The upward call that says, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to adopt you. 
so that I can be with you. That's the upward call. If God is good, perfectly good, then he needs to give us what is perfectly good, and that is himself. So listen, Christian, I don't know how often you dwell on this, but God called you so that you would actually be with him. And that call will be actualized, finalized at your death or at his return. And it will be true, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that one day with unveiled face as beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we will be transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5.10, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Listen, this morning you need to hear this, that you were made and you were saved to behold his glory and in person. We read about it. It's on the pages of scripture. It excites us and thrills us. But one day you'll get it, all of it. And that should keep us running. The greatest reward is what the theologians refer to as the beatific vision. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles? I want you to see this for yourself. Revelation chapter 22, the very end. What are we aiming at? Why are we pursuing? Why are we running? Look here in Revelation chapter 22, there in verse 3. Glory in this with me. John writes, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the bondservants will serve him, verse 4, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever. And ever. Our goal, our aim, our desire is to be with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and to behold his glory. Sidno, Sid, Sidlow Baxter wrote this Christ is the believer's goal. We see that in verse 9, he is the goal of our faith. He is the goal of our love in verse 10. He is the goal of our hope in verses 11 through 14. He writes, he is the goal of our faith for a heavenly righteousness. He is the goal of our love for a heavenly fellowship. He is the goal of our hope for a heavenly blessedness. Paul says, I'm running like crazy because I want Jesus. Well, let's close with just four quick application points. Four application points that I think will help us all run a better race starting today. Just four words that I want you to meditate on as you walk out of here and you continue in your pursuit of Christ. The first word I want to ingrain in your mind, tattoo it there, is priority. What is your priority? Right? There's nothing that's wrong with having pursuits. I was just talking to, to Brother Scott about his PhD and his test and having to study, and I'm still studying and you're studying or you're pursuing something. Uh, you don't put everything to the side. You can have priorities, but your number one priority is Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
That's the number one priority of life. Striving after holiness. Listen, it wasn't Paul's number one priority. It was his only priority. You probably have said this just like I have, where you you compartmentalize. It's like the Lord, and then it's my wife, my kids, my job, and you kind of like, you, you make this list. And the reality is all of it belongs to the Lord. Everything fits in the circumference of the Lord as your number one priority. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will be not mastered by them. See, it's fine, again, to have priorities, but it needs to be within the ultimate goal of pursuing Christ. So my pursuit, your pursuit of Christ should be your number one priority. But secondly, your pursuit of Christ should be perpetual. Perpetual. As long as you're alive, as long as the Lord gives you breath, you need to be pursuing Christ passionately. The Christian life, you know this, it's not a hundred yard dash. I hate running long, I hate running, period. But there's so many lessons to, to be learned. Long distance runners, just same pace, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, no matter what happens. Don't be distracted. Don't go off course. Now imagine if you had an Olympic swimmer and the gun goes off and he jumps in the pool and he just starts going into other lanes. That's not very effective. A downhill skier who just starts doing donuts, that's not helpful. No. Every day, one step, another step, another step. And that's why the church is so valuable because it's easier when you have people running with you and encouraging you and bolstering your faith and reminding you, get off your butt, let's go. Discipleship. One commentator said this, to know the incomprehensible greatness of Christ demands a lifetime of arduous inquiry, always looking into more and more of Christ. So our pursuit of Christ should be a priority, it should be perpetual, but thirdly, you need to know this, that it's painful, painful. The Bible talks about Christians as warriors, compares them to wrestlers, compares them to competitors, and that word picture implies all kinds of exertion in the face of opposition. We have to train. We have to. I was just telling a couple that I'm way 230. I've put on so much weight because of the Achilles, and I blame it on the Achilles, but I just like tacos. Um, I need a plan to lose weight, and I got to stick with it. It's a fight. It's a fight. You just don't one day wake up and everything's fantastic. Look at, listen to the way the Bible puts this. You need to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You need to resist temptation. You need to mortify the flesh. You need to flee immorality. You need to contend earnestly for the faith. You need to guard the treasure that's been entrusted to you. You need to stand in the grace of God. You need to put on the full armor of God. You need to walk in a manner worthy. The Bible calls us over and over and over again to disciplined devotion. 
we can't just passively expect to become more like Christ. We have to work hard, understanding that we're not working for our salvation. God's already done that. But now, synergistically, we're working with him to bring about a greater holiness. The Spirit is what produces the holiness. So we prioritize. It's perpetual. It's painful. But the last thing, we can't walk away without this. It is the most pleasurable thing in all the earth. Everything that we do, whether it's lifting weights, going on a diet, curbing your spending, we don't just do that because that stuff is fun. Some people are strange like that. But we do that in the Christian life because we know that making sacrifices is worth it. We know that if we keep our eyes fixed on Christ and fight against sin, that we have a greater joy that's made available to us. And so we don't sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. We sacrifice because in doing so, we're taking serious our joy. The greatest joy that you and I will ever know is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The greatest pleasure that you and I will ever know, the greatest contentment that we will experience in our hearts is the advancing and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So let me ask in closing what we started with. Are you pursuing Christ passionately as your prize? There's no way to fake that. You will have your life ordered in such a way. You will be praying in such a way. You'll be reading your scripture in such a way. You'll be coming to church in such a way. You'll be using your gifts in such a way. You'll be discipling in such a way that the message is clear. That guy, that girl is pursuing hard after Christ. How do you want to spend the one life that you have? It's not all about you. It's about Christ. The beautiful thing is, when you pursue Christ, you are really making it the best for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, well, I, anyway, I am convicted, convicted by the reality that I have not given my fullest and greatest effort for me, Lord, as an athlete for so many years, devoting myself, dedicating myself, waking up early, going on diets, lifting weights, not going and partying, not going and having fun, not staying out late at night. There was a season there where I was so adamant about winning championships and winning basketball games and being in the best shape. And I did whatever it took. That great sacrifice Oh, Lord, how much more, how much more should we all be ordering and structuring our lives in a way that tells the world that you are worthy, that demonstrates that you are the preeminent pleasure in all the earth? Oh, Father, please meet us where we're at. We know that we're not perfect. We know that we are sinners. We know that we fall so short of your glory. But, Father, for those here who have been saved, those here who are being sanctified, we've tasted and seen that you are good and that you are our worthy prize. 
So would you please help us in a very practical and real sense, even today, begin to structure our lives in such a way that we pursue you with everything we got. We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. But today, Lord, we can run and run well by the grace you provide. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.